I'm Bill Finn. You may remember me from other popular podcasts like This American Lice, Daycare Disasters, and The Crafty Brewtown Strangler, The Limited Edition Killer. Take it from me, a good podcast is like a fine wine, perfect for binging. It's season three of the Bait and Switch Podcast. Welcome back to the Bait and Switch Podcast. I'm Chris Beyer with my co-host Jim Martin. Hello, everybody. Tonight's guest is Matthew Boucher. He is a fellow Wautosa guy. He went to Tosa West, and he is the son of Craig Boucher, who is how I got this contact because I bike with his dad, who is also a formidable cyclist. Matthew is a, a retired cyclist. He started out his endurance sports career as a runner, and then he switched to cycling because of an injury. He was a runner in, in uh, college in Iowa, and he went on to a pro career that started in 2009 with Kelly Benefit Strategies, moving on to two iterations of the Radio Shack team and finishing up with United Healthcare, a racing team in 2016. He competed in the 2014 Tour de France. He won two U.S. national titles in 2011 and 2015. And now he is uh, a retired pro that's doing some coaching with Carmichael Training System CTS down in North Carolina. Welcome, Matthew. Thank Welcome you. Thank you. But yeah. I, th- I think that about wraps it up, huh? Yeah. <laughs> so, <we'll, laughs> thanks for being here. And <laughs> hey, uh, both Jim and I ran cross country in high school. What injury was it that kind of forced the switch to cycling? I think I had some patellar tendonitis. I, I don't know if it was ever formally diagnosed, but some pain below my knee. Uh, I think more or less it was just growing pains. I was, I was kind of late to grow. Kept me sidelined for a while, but thankfully, thankfully my brother had a bike I could borrow. Yeah, that that worked out, I guess, huh? Yeah. <laughs> you were a good runner as well. Yeah, I mean, in high school, I I did all right. I I made it to state a couple times, but nothing nothing too notable. And in college, I I definitely sort of came into my own a little bit more. I was a two-time All-American in cross-country and qualified for nationals in the steeplechase and narrowly missed All-American for that. Yeah, cool. So you like sports that make you feel like you want to throw up, I guess, huh? Uh, I, I have one of those twisted, uh, or maybe had, I don't know if I have it anymore, but had that uh, twisted mentality, just the, uh, the, the will and the desire to suffer uh, just sort of came naturally to me. And, right. Never really much into basketball or baseball or soccer. Um, never played organized basketball. I played organized baseball and soccer. But ever since the fifth grade mile, I I found that I enjoyed running, um, which led me to cycling. So there's just something in there for me for the endurance endurance sports side of things. It probably didn't hurt that you were successful at those things. Yeah, I, I guess I guess success uh, success probably helps with that. I think I just enjoyed working hard and pushing myself. Something about it that that drove me, and I think it, I think it still still drives me a little bit these days. Is that a blessing and a curse? You know, to be good at something that requires tons of suffering. <laughs> I guess it depends who you are. It <laughs> yeah. depends what you want to do, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, for me, I guess I guess it was a blessing. 
because yeah I wanted to work hard I wanted to be better but for those around me it might have been a curse because I might have been grumpy or not available all the time I think for me it's just the way I was hardwired and I think it's made me who I am obviously and certainly gave me some fun experiences in my life and hopefully it'll pay off throughout the rest of my life if I continue with coaching or whatever I whatever I continue to do it's got to be a little bit in the genes because I bike with your dad and it's tough to stay, uh, stay up with him. Yeah, even I have trouble when we go and ride together. <laughs> yeah, one of the things I've tried to teach him to do is slow down a little bit. Nobody understands that if you go a little slower, sometimes you get faster. So, Can you explain that when you say sometimes you got to go slower and makes you go faster? Yeah, I guess that's coach speak, right? Um, <laughs> everybody thinks uh, I got to be out there going hard 100% every day, but if you're always trying to go really hard, you're just always kind of sort of tired and you can never never go harder to a certain point you you improve right but then at a certain point you plateau uh, and you and you can never push yourself hard enough to induce your body to want to create adaptations so you got to learn how to go hard on hard days and go easy on easy days um, so that your body can can recover and make make adaptations and and get better Make sure you have the recovery and the rest that you need and all that. That does make sense. Yeah, you don't want to go seven days a week, 100% all the time. Yeah, okay. Getting back to the suffering part of this, another thing I know (laughs) involving the suffering of the the life of the professional cyclist is your diet and your weight. Was Mm -hmm. that a really difficult part of your job? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I'd say that's that's, uh, something that's pretty difficult. I never struggled with it too much, thankfully. I, I tried not to focus on it too much because I found if I focused on it too much, I would have the opposite effect and end up going the wrong direction. So I just tried to try to be mindful eater. I never drank too much beer or anything like that. My kryptonite was usually ice cream. Um, yeah, in general, I, I prefer to eat healthy and you know being lean is is part of the sport. It's you know it's watts per kilo. It's power to weight ratio. So. Uh, were there problems with people in the Peloton back then with, uh, what am I cr- trying to say, weight control? Like eating disorders? Eating or? disorders. Yeah. Were there problems that, that, with eating disorders in the Peloton? Uh, in general, professional cyclists, professional runners, you know, professional endurance athletes, you're going to be lean. When you're coming to the tour, you're 4 or 5% body fat. I raced all the time. I was pretty much always under 5% body fat. Um, you're, you're just lean. And I, I certainly uh, know I had a teammate or two. I, I mean, he even came public, Yanni Brockovich. He definitely was very, very skinny. Personally, I, ne- I never, you know, was like knew that he had a problem, but I always sort of had that thought in the back of my head. A lot of people walking around are looking like skeletons. So there is definitely that fine line. You know, I think if a lot of people looked at looked at professional cyclists, they'd be like, "Oh, yeah, they're not eating enough." Um, but unless you're unless you're with uh, with the people more often, you probably couldn't make a fair fair judgment. So yeah, and you know, models have to be thin. Football right. players have to be big, so right. it's part of the job. Right. right. What uh, when you raced the tour? What was your height and weight when you raced the tour? Um, five eight, and I was hovering around 150 probably more like 147 148 that's a little more than i would think i'm a i'm a stockier guy yeah, <laughs> yeah. if, if, if 147 can be stocky yeah <laughs> right, right, no, right. I'm, I'm stockier than than a lot of people my size that's for sure 
So you're working uh, at CTS now. Uh, who are you training? You know, just nine to five guys who are men and women who are, you know, enthusiastic about it and have the disposable income to use on that. And, you know, they're, they're trying to be as fit as they can be, you know, take on Grand Fondos and, you know, century challenges and what's left of the few uh, road races in the country. And, you know, the up and coming gravel scene is a big attraction for people. So that's, uh, that's a big one. But yeah, most people are just uh, just training to, to feel fit and, and be fit. It might also be um, a little bit like a fantasy baseball camp, right? Where they can go meet people like you mm-hmm. and other people that are professional cyclists. They get a little bit of charge out of meeting people that were on the scene. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, we definitely uh, definitely do camps and you dream it. We, we make it happen type of thing. So, Are there other professional cyclists that I might know that work with you guys? Off the top of my head, uh, Chris Carmichael. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, we definitely have some coaches who were really good high-level athletes in their day, but yeah, I don't think any who were like professional road racers or anything. The okay. Actually, the, the ultra-running side of uh, CTS has really taken off, and we have a few sort of high-profile names from that side of endurance sport, but not really from the cycling side of things. Yeah, North Carolina has really become a hotbed of cycling, hasn't it? Yeah, I didn't know it was as good as it is when I moved here, that's for sure. We have the best of really good road cycling and, and really good uh, mountain biking. You have flats, you got long climbs, you got some short climbs. And then the gravel riding here is is good, but having gone to school in northeast Iowa, I still maintain that that's some of the best uh, best gravel riding in the in the country, so... Yeah, that's uh, North Carolina is cool because, like you said, they get a, close to the mountains and hills and stuff. They get a lot of lot of good uh, terrain, but then they also got just a great climate. Yeah. But Getting back cool. to your uh, your professional career, was your participation in the tour uh, was that the the peak of your career? Being a part of that. Um. Obviously, as a as a professional cyclist, I think that's you know most would uh, call that sort of the pinnacle, or or maybe the Olympics, something like that. Which, yeah, I mean, I wish I'd been able to do the Olympics. That would have been really cool. I won, uh, I won the national championship in 2011, which was a year too early because if I'd won in 2012, I went to, where was it, Rio or London? London, I think. Yeah. Um, that was, that was yep. an automatic bid. But, uh, uh, yeah, I narrowly missed that selection. Um, yeah, I mean, the tour was, uh, was definitely, definitely unforgettable. Getting the selection was, um, was a highlight for sure. Really glad I finished. I certainly had the had my hands full. I uh, uh, crashed three times on stage five, two times on stage six, and one time on stage nine or ten. The three crashes on stage five were the Prairie Roubaix cobble stage, and right. it was raining, and all the crashes were before the cobblestone. Right. The first crash I went down, courtesy of Chris Froome. Nearly hit a signpost uh, going 40 miles an hour, so that would have been pretty awesome. And that ended um, his tour, didn't it? Yeah, I think that's he broke his wrist. Then the next one, I was I think we were actually going into Roubaix or something like that. I was behind Andre Greipel and caught the lip of a seam of a road as, as I was turning, and it grabbed my rear wheel and slid me out. And then I was in a chase group. This was all right before the cobbles, and I was second wheel going into roundabout, and guy in front of me, washed out and i had just enough time to think yep this is not good yikes the the rest of the day was super easy i rode all the cobbles by myself 
it was it was cake. Cobbles cobbles were no problem. Who was your team leader that year? Was it Malama maybe or? No, I think we would have been riding for one of the Schleck brothers. Oh, okay. Uh, that was actually the year that Andy broke his tailbone. I think Frank was doing all right, and then I think he might have pulled the plug. I don't remember for sure. But we ended up with Imar Zabeldi uh, doing, like, fifth or something. He was always always consistent in the tour. Yeah, but, I mean, rolling out of the Champs-Élysées was pretty cool and finishing. Okay. and Yeah, it was pretty awesome. Yeah. Was there any rider that, that you were in awe of that you actually raced with or met that you were kind of pinching yourself you're actually competing with this guy? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, I think I had raced with most of these guys at, at different races, um, and I was familiar enough with the sport. I wasn't so green anymore that I, you know, I knew most of the people. So there wasn't so much starstruck, but I mean, you still have great respect for all those guys. I mean, they're, they're terrific bike riders. Um, and I can say, you know, hands down of any race I did, the tour was the hardest. Um, the just, I don't know how, but everybody was on, you know, they're just on a different level. Stakes are so much higher and people that, you know, they really peak for it day in and day out. It was, you know, fighting for your life. <laughs> Uh, the most prominent cyclist, maybe a little before your ear, Armstrong. Did you get to meet him? Uh, I was on his team. He was on the team at that time? No, that was his, um, I mean, Radio Shack was sort of like his, I think his first year of his comeback was 2009 with Astana, I think. And then 2010, he wanted to create his own thing, I, I presume, to uh, avoid conflict with uh, Contador and whatnot. That was the year I, that I turned pro. I rode in a, hand, a couple races with Lance in, I think, 2010. Hardly ever saw him. Uh, nobody ever really saw him, to be honest. I mean, he was always, always kind of on his own, own deal. Okay. When did you first find out you had a wiki page in Wikipedia? <laughs> I think that's... Uh, probably after I won the championship in 2011. That might have yeah. been when it started. I just think it's kind of funny. Like Chris is like, yeah, you can check him out on Wikipedia. Yeah, cool. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. kind of, we had kind of another uh, former U.S. champion on our show. Any guesses? A former Milwaukee guy. Uh, Tom Schuler. Yep, Tom Schuler was go. on our show. Well yeah. Let's talk pop. about those two titles that you won. Cycling, there's a lot of tactics, but I'm sure you felt strong those days. What were those days like? Yeah, they're both they're both pretty memorable. Um, 2011 was in Greenville, super hot, four big laps, including Paris Mountain. I actually had done U.S. Nationals, I guess, in Greenville, two or maybe even three previous years. Um, so I was pretty familiar with the course, knew it was hard, uh, and we we had just come off of Tour of California with Chris winning, and I had which Chris I was Horner. Yeah. Yep. Yeah played a big role in that with good performances for him on stage four and stage uh, six or seven. That was definitely a, a big moment for me. But that, that was the week before U.S. Pro. So I knew I was on good form. And uh, the years previous, I had been, you know, top 10 kind of in the final group all the time. And that year, we hit Paris Mountain the last time. And TJ Van Garderen went totally crazy. George and I hung with him and then I think we caught uh, a couple of guys from the from the breakaway and we all stayed together into the final local laps you know George was the odds-on favorite hometown 
but I wasn't going to give it away, right? I was going to try. And I remember the finish has a, you kind of go a block over and go uphill and then basically hook a U-turn. And uh, I tacked on that uphill. George hopped on my wheel and came by me on the downhill toward the finish. And I was able, you know, I never had a super good snap, but I had a good long, long effort. And I don't think George had any idea who I was. And I was able to get in a slipstream after he sprinted by me. And uh, I pulled back past him just at the last second and got him by a, by the depth of a wheel on a, on a bike throw. So wow. um, I had no idea uh, what yeah. was going on. I, I kind of remember, you know, being there for the podium ceremony. It was the first time I had ever done that. So I was like, well, what am I doing here? There they are. One more time. These are your top three. Matthew Boucher, George Hickabby, and Ted King. The one, two, and three here in Greenville. The pop is early. That's all right. Boucher is going to get his bottle. Ted King gets his bottle. George Hickabby also gets his I just remember, you know, George's kid there crying and I was, and now I, having kids myself, I understand why he was crying and then partially feeling like I was going to get lynched in, in Greenville because I was not supposed to win. That one was just kind of like a blip on the radar and, I, you know, it certainly, it happened so quick and I was just, it just sort of like was, was what it was. It, and I guess now that I talk about it, it feels like, okay, it actually happened. Um, right. Then 2015, you know, I was much more quote unquote veteran in the sport. And I definitely, you know, knew after 2011 that I had, you know, if I, if I was in the right race, you know, I, I knew I should have a chance at winning. Um, I always believed I had a chance at winning again. And that one was in Chattanooga. It was a very similar course, four times up Lookout Mountain. That year, Andrew Chelansky went off the front on a solo mission super early in the race. And I was there by myself, and I, I thought the race was over. I don't even really know what happened at the front of the race. I just waited in the field, followed everything where I could. Last time up Lookout Mountain, I think it was Alex Howes attacked, and I went over the top, I think just a little bit behind him. We railed the descent and picked up a few people as we went, uh, and everything sort of regrouped back in the local laps, and um, it was down to... I think just uh, Gavin Manny and Joe Dombrowski and myself for um, they had added whatever short little kicker they had on the other side of the river. And on the last lap, we had dropped uh, dropped Gavin. I knew I wanted Gavin away because he was a good sprinter. So it was Joe and me, and I just rode the front to keep keep a distance. Uh, but knew obviously Joe would attack me, and yeah, he attacked me with like a kilometer to go going through the feed zone. Uh, he got a small gap, but I just I just rode him back uh, under under control and uh, knew that you know I had to attack right right away so he couldn't recover. Um, and I caught him right at a at a second second to last corner, uh, which was a right hand corner, kind of downhill. And then there was a median in the exit. I saw the median, and we were on the left side of the road. And I jumped to the right side of the road and attacked. I made sure that he couldn't get on my wheel. I got a gap and pedaled hard and looked back after a little bit and saw I had a gap. So then I was able to savor that one. All I had to do was keep it upright in the final left-hand corner and not crash in the rain. Yeah, I was able, was able to actually think about that one and realize what, I was, what was happening. So Those are two big wins yeah. uh, on your resume there. For people that don't know professional cycling, there's 150, 180 guys at the start line. So 
cyclists oftentimes go through a whole career without winning one race or win just a couple. The question I got for you is, in Europe, what was the one that got away? What was the race that you almost won? Uh, there was two days, actually, yeah. One, I think it was Castilla-Leon. One of the days, you know, when the whole field started protesting sort of like the weather protocol and all that stuff, you know, sort of inclement weather rides and neutralizing stages, this was one of those days um, we were supposed to do some high mountains. This is like west of Madrid, so there's some higher mountains over there, um, and they had gotten some snow. And so they were protesting the start. All the big wigs had said, okay, we're not going to ride. And, and then they agreed with the organizers, okay, we'll ride the stage. We'll ride it neutral for safety. Well, we started the stage and a bunch of the small teams just started attacking. So the race was on. I ended up up the road uh, and in the final breakaway. And actually when we went over the high mountains, there was like three inches of snow on the ground. And I, we went over the crest of the climb and into the descent, and this was before disc brakes, and uh, I went to grab my brakes, and they were frozen. Um, Yeah, thankfully, I got them to let loose, and got down the descent safely, took like the last hairy corner of the descent, and I'll I'll never forget coming around that left-hand corner, there was like this big field, and the drop to the field was like, I don't know, 10 feet, and there was a guy way out in the field. He had overshot it. So I saw him down there. He was like waving like, help, help. Anyway, so we, went to, we went to the finish line. I was in a final group of four. I know that I tactically did it wrong, but I had the legs to win. Yeah. Um, I remember crossing the finish line, you know, realizing that I had definitely screwed that one up. So that was, that was definitely a big, uh, big bummer. But then the one for sure that, that is probably most prominent for me was uh, – I think it was 2013 Dauphiné. Uh, I don't know what stage it was, uh, but I know the finish was at Valmorel, um, and I was in the breakaway. It was a you know ski station finish. Breakaway made it to the finishing climb. I don't know. There was four or five, six of us. Uh, a couple guys got dropped. Two or three guys got up the road, and slowly I reeled them back. And then all of a sudden, I was the lone leader on the road. Meanwhile, the peloton was being driven by. Richie Port and Sky behind, uh, riding for for Froome, and my director was in my ear the whole time. Um, you know, keep going, keep going, keep going. Right at the finish, there's like three or four switchbacks, and like 200 meters from the line, Contador and Froome caught me, and I was a little bit mad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Number one is caught. Number eleven. The two pre-race favourites for the Tour de France now racing at the Dauphiné. But Froome is the unbackable favourite for this year's Criterium de Dauphiné. The stage window is still up for grabs as he stretches the legs and puts a nail potentially into the coffin of Alberto Contador. Contador trying to respond. Matthew Bush, can he desperately hold on? He's almost there, but the last 300 metres, they're steep. Broom sprinting through the last corner. Contador trying to hold on. It now climbs all the way through to the finish line. Let's not forget the American has been in the breakaway all day long as Froome comes past. The resignation from the rider from the Radio Shack team. Likewise from Alberto Contador. This is an emphatic win for Chris Froome. And he's onto the big chain ring as well. 
Ford will take the stage. He'll also take the yellow jersey. And that may be one of the most important wins of his career. It's Contador in second. Bush is in third. Valverde home for fourth. Followed by Rogers. It's then Moreno and then Taramay. So that was that was one that got away, but I had nothing left. Nothing left. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, hey, man, we told you we weren't going to keep you too long tonight, so we'll wrap things up. Matt, I want to thank you for stopping uh, on our show tonight. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, Matt, thanks a lot. We really appreciate you coming on. Yeah. Thank you, guys. We'll see you. Join us next time on the Bait and Switch podcast when we talk with daytime TV court show participant Whitney Howard.